But Exodus 25 is we're going to spend uh, our time this morning. And, uh, and as we walk through um, these verses, um, I want us to try to put ourselves into the place of an Israelite in that day, in the book of Exodus. Um, so let's just try and see it through the eyes of an ordinary Jew. Um, let's call his name Yavin. That seems like a good generic Jewish name. The exact timing of everything isn't overly clear, but, but somewhere between a year and a half, two years ago, Yavin was a slave, working hard as a husband and father, long hours out in the hot sun, often whipped or beaten, calloused hands, scarred back, making bricks, building structures for the Egyptians. And one day as Yavin was working away, he heard rumor that Moses had come back. Moses was one of them. He was an Israelite, but he grew up in the palace and uh, killed a man, killed an a Egyptian guard for beating a Hebrew slave and had to flee. But now he had returned and he was talking about salvation. He was talking about Yahweh coming to their rescue. Yahweh, the God that Yavin had heard his father and his grandfather speaking about. And sure enough, amazing things began to happen. He, he watched with his family in the safety of their home as the ten plagues played out throughout Egypt. And eventually, Pharaoh broke. And Yavin, along with his fellow Israelites, packed up all of their belongings and they headed out, out of Egypt, into the wilderness. And one final display of God's unquestionable victory over Pharaoh, um, he watched as God parted the Red Sea, held his little daughter's hand as they walked through on dry ground and then turned around in, in fearful wonder as God let the sea come crashing down back onto Pharaoh and his army. They were free, homeless, mind you, um, a little lost in the wilderness, but free. The Lord miraculously provided for them this, this bread from heaven and water from rocks, and, and they would follow Moses through the wilderness, and at last they came to Mount Sinai. And for the first time, Yavin's experience with this Yahweh became personal, and it was terrifying. Moses set up boundary markers around the edge of the mountain and said, anyone who crosses this barrier will die. Everyone took three days to, to bathe, to wash their clothes, to prepare themselves for this visit from God. And on the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain. There was fire and smoke and the earth shook. And at the sound of loud trumpets, they gathered around the mountain, crowded around to see what it would be as Yahweh appeared. And God spoke to them, a voice like thunder. And he gave them the Ten Commandments. But as the, the voice of the Lord rang out, Yavin began to fear. He found himself creeping further and further back, eventually hiding behind a rock. And notice the whole crowd had kind of timidly withdrawn. As God finished giving the Ten Commandments, they all agreed together. It would be best if Moses just went and spoke to the Lord, and then you report to us. You tell us what he said. We can't, we can't face him 
again. That's too much for us. And so they did just that. Moses went up the mountain for some time and uh, returned again with this message. That God who appeared on the mountain, he's coming to dwell with us. He's coming to live among us. Yavin listened carefully as Moses explained, God wants us to build a tent, a tabernacle, and he will dwell in our midst. And as he heard that, began to think, what about those Ten Commandments? How do I match up? Remembering, of course, that the requirements of those Ten Commandments isn't, isn't just a strict kind of word-for-word obedience to the letter of the law, but, but living perfectly pure. Staying away from, from anything that even moved in the direction of breaking those commandments. And so even hatred broke the law of murder and lust broke the law of adultery. And he began to run through them in his mind. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make for yourselves any idols. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder Commit adultery, steal, lie, or covet. Let's just set Yavin aside for a second. Um, show of hands. If anyone's guilty of breaking one or more of those commandments, would you put up your hand? Yeah, it's not good. Um, th- those of you who didn't, um, that's lying, and now you have, so you can join the crowd. Um, that's us. Yavin quietly began to wonder, What does this God think of me? What does this mean for me? If this God comes to dwell in the camp, do I have to leave? Can I stay here? This is the problem of the presence of God. And it's a huge problem. How can I, as a sinful person, approach, dwell in the presence of holiness, the presence of this God? But as Moses continued to give instructions on what this tabernacle would be, what this tent would be about, and what would be in it, the first thing that he gives instructions on how to build um, would have had Yavin particularly interested. Could this be the answer to my question? The solution to the problem. The Lord told uh, how they were to build the Ark of the Covenant. This would be the very heart of the tabernacle, the centerpiece of God's dwelling with them. And it would be the answer to that question. How can an unholy people live in the presence of a holy God? So what was it that Yavin saw in the building of the ark? What would would it have meant to him then? and, and, And what does it mean for us today? Well, there are key Three, three, three key things I want us to see um, that, that Yavin would have seen. That the presence of the Lord is desirable. That the presence of the Lord is dreadful. And that the presence of the Lord is done. And, and I'll explain that as we get there. Um, as we talked about last week, um, as we're working through the book of Exodus, um, there are two sections on the tabernacle and and the building of it. So verses uh, 25 to 31 record God's instructions. This is what you are to do. And then in verses, or sorry, chapters, chapters 35 to 39 records Israel obeying those commands and and 
actually building the tabernacle. And so rather than working through them sequentially and, and going over the tabernacle twice, um, we're going to flip back and forth and kind of look at the, the instructions and the obedience side by side. So this morning we're going to be in Exodus chapter 25. And then, uh, and then we're going to flip over to chapter 37 as well. So maybe just stick a finger in there. But look with me, Exodus chapter 25, um, we're going to start in verse 10. And as we talk about the Ark of the Covenant, um, we're actually talking about two separate things, right? There's, there's the Ark itself, which is just the, the box, uh, and then there's what's called the mercy seat, the lid on top of the box. So let's, we're going to look first at just the Ark, um, 25, starting in verse 10. They shall make an Ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put, it into, the, put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. And if you just slip over to 37. I'm going to start at uh, verse 1 of, of chapter 37. And we see... Uh, Bezalel, who's one of the two men that God has supernaturally empowered for doing this work, for carrying out um, these instructions. Uh, and, uh, and, and very simply, it says, Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and out, and he made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its feet. Two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. So there it is. The ark of the covenant. You probably want to flip back to 25. That's where we're going to spend most of our, of our time, most of our focus. The ark of the covenant. Um, ark simply means box. It, it really is that plain. Um, and the covenant a covenant is a contract, an agreement between two parties. And, and in this case, it's kind of used as shorthand to speak of the Ten Commandments and specifically the, the tablets of stone that the Ten Commandments were written on. So verse 16, um, I was talking about when it, when it says, you shall put into the ark the testimony that I should give you. That word testimony could just as easily be translated um, the covenant. So he's speaking of these stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments are engraved. And those tablets and the commandments on them um, were a symbol of the covenant. Kind of like a, a wedding ring is the symbol of a marriage covenant. These Ten Commandments are the symbol of the covenant between them and God. And I say the Ark of the Covenant was the centerpiece of the tabernacle, um, partly because literally it was. It was in the middle of the tabernacle. I have a, a picture here for you if we can throw that up. Um, so here's a, a artist rendition of what the tabernacle looked like. You see the, the fence around the outside and then the main building with some of the pieces of furniture in there. We'll, we'll go through those in weeks to come. Uh, and at the back, there's the main curtain and that's the Ark of the Covenant at the back. And so it is in the, in the heart, in the innermost place of the tabernacle. 
But more significantly, it's central because it was there above the ark that God said his presence would dwell. That's where he would be. And and that's at the center of the meaning of the tabernacle. That's what the tabernacle is all about. It was this tent in which the Lord said, my presence will be with you. And, And specifically, it was above the ark of the covenant that his presence would dwell. And so what is this ark? Well, it's a box. It's a box made out of acacia wood. Um, the acacia tree uh, is one of the few full-size trees that grows through the Sinai Peninsula in the wilderness there. Um, it is a particularly nasty tree. Um, it is a thorny tree. Do we have a picture of that? There we go. Look at that beauty. Um, we, we have no idea really, but it's quite possible that the acacia tree um, was used to make the crown of thorns, which is just interesting that the, the ark was made possibly the same uh, tree that that supplied the thorns for Jesus' crown of thorns. But this box measured two and a half cubits by one cubit, or sorry, two and a half cubits by one and a half cubits by one and a half cubits. So it's square on the end and a little bit longer. Uh, A cubit is about 18 inches. So we're talking about three foot nine by two foot three by two foot three. And, uh, and then the, the legs underneath and the, and the lid on top. Um, and the whole thing is overlaid with gold inside and out. And it was to have a molding around it, some kind of decorative rim. God is giving Bezalel some kind of creative license, put a molding on it. Uh, and then these four rings on each uh, foot, the, the word there is actually very vague. Is it, is it on each corner, on each foot, on each leg? Um, but something along those lines. Uh, and then the poles of acacia wood, also covered in gold, were to run through the rings to carry it. And, and as we saw then in chapter 20, or 37, um, Bezalel, whom the Lord gifted, just carries those instructions out to the letter. So we have um, something very rare and special for you this morning. I have an actual picture of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, if we can throw that, there it is. Um, maybe not. That's, uh, that's the Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, Indiana Jones. Um, but I think they did their research. Uh, you know, as far as we know, there's, there's just room for creative license. What does it look like? Maybe something like that. Um, there's, a, there's a molding around it. It's about the right size. They've got the, um, the lid on top, um, the, the rings on the side. So um, maybe, um, as, good as, as good as anybody's guess, um, maybe a good point just to mention, though, um, there's nothing special about the ark itself, right? The ark is not some mysterious, powerful thing. Um, it, had, it had no power in and of itself, um, if, if someone were to find the ark today, some archaeologists were to stumble upon that, what they would have is a really cool gold box with some neat historical significance. Um, but I think, um, you know, the, the Nazis of Indiana Jones's day would be very disappointed. Um, what made the ark significant was that the presence of God was there, and, and it's not anymore. So it, it, it's, it's just a box. Now, Yavin um, and his other average Israelite friends would not see the ark on a regular basis. It was sequestered away in the tabernacle. Um, Only the high priest would enter the most holy place, and even then only once a year. And and it's interesting, I I think, you know, all the pictures that I've seen in my children's Bible growing up, whenever you see the the priests carrying the ark, you can can see it there in all of its splendor. Um, but there's instructions given in Numbers that when they move it, they're to take down the curtain that covers it and lay that over top of the ark. Um, I don't know if they always obeyed that, um, 
but, but that was the directions, and I, I don't see that revoked in any place. So it's possible that, that they never saw it, that it was kept uh, covered, it was kept uh, in the most holy place, uh, and yet he would have known well this description of the ark. He would have known well um, what it looked like and what it was all about. And so when his daughter looked up at him and asked, what's inside that tent in the middle of the camp? Or maybe his more inquisitive teenager uh, or some stranger passing through would ask, what's this all about? What's the point? Why do we have this? What would he answer? What did it mean to him? Well, number one, as we saw in the way the ark is built and treated, I think the first thing it communicates is the presence of the Lord is desirable. The presence of the Lord is good. It's beautiful. Partly just its own beauty communicates that, right? It's, it's pure gold. It's sparkling and dazzling. It's, it's crafted and decorated by a, a supernaturally empowered artist. And that's awesome. I think our art today would be really pathetic compared to um, what they had in the tabernacle. Um, but it communicated the presence of the Lord is, is beautiful. It's a wonderful, desirable place to be. Uh, but not just by its own beauty. Um, there's imagery to it. There's symbolism here. I think the pure gold um, reminds us of God's wealth and, and his kingdom, his glory. And more than just that, do you know where gold shows up in the Bible first? As Yavin was listening to stories from his grandfather handed down by Grandpa Adam or possibly reading the book of Genesis that Moses wrote. Um, Genesis 2, 10 to 12 talks about the Garden of Eden as a land rich with gold, pure gold. And it was also guarded, the entrance of it, by uh, a cherub, an angel, um, like the one that is on the two that are on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. I think this imagery uh, on the ark is, is pointing back to the Garden of Eden. It's reminding them uh, of the presence of God, a time of peace and fellowship with God, a time when there was no sin. And so there was no death and there was no suffering and there was no pain of any kind, no corruption. And so it was a place of full peace, of joy, of, of fullness and it was in the Garden of Eden that, that Adam and Eve walked with God. They had friendship with God. It was beautiful. The ark is reminding them the presence of the Lord is desirable. This is where you want to be. This is what your soul longs for. Even if you don't know it, this is it. This is the answer. This is the key part to that kind of overarching storyline of the Bible. Right, so the Bible is, is 66 different books written by 40-plus authors over 1,500 years, um, but it's one seamless story written by one editor, uh, author over all of it, who is God. And, 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 and so it is one story, and, and this is the first movement of that story, is this idea of, the, of paradise lost, that they had relationship with God, they had peace and joy and everything they needed and they lost it due to their sin, due to rebellion against God. And the ark was meant to remind them of that, to draw their hearts back to that time. This is the way back to a Garden of Eden-like relationship with God. And does your, does your heart, heart ever just kind of ache within you? 
Do you ever feel like this is just too overwhelming, exhausting? I'm, I'm weary. There's pain and there's suffering. I don't want to, I don't want to do this life anymore. Do you ever just feel like there, there's got to be something more? This isn't satisfying. This isn't enough. I want something else, something beyond this world of pain. This is your heart longing for the Lord, longing for what you were created to have, which is a relationship with Him. His presence is desirable. It's, it's beautiful. It's what we were created for. It is what satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts. And yet at the same time, secondly, the ark was a reminder to them that the presence of the Lord is also dreadful. Yes, it's desirable, but it is at the same time dreadful. There's something fearful about the ark. It was not approachable. Yavin couldn't just waltz in and see the ark. It was unapproachable. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't come near. There was a large wall surrounding the courtyard of the tabernacle. Only the priests would enter in. And once they went in the front gate and across the courtyard and into the main building called the, the holy place, even then the ark was kept at the, kind of the back third of that building in a smaller room called the Holy of Holies, closed off by that thick, heavy curtain. And, and not, not two curtains that you could separate, not a curtain with a door. Uh, it was a solid curtain. You're cut off. The, the priests that went in there... Um, once a year on the Day of Atonement, after a sacrifice, he had to crawl under the curtain, I suppose. It was not easy. It was unapproachable. And I think the, the pure gold has that element to it as well, reminding us of the purity that is required to be in the presence of the Lord. And then there's these poles that were to be built with the ark to be slid into the rings for carrying it, and it's just a clear statement to them. You don't touch the ark. Even the priests, you, you don't. It's hands off. God was serious about that. Um, many years later when David was king, um, they were moving the ark at, not on the poles as they should have, but on a cart. And the ox that was pulling the cart stumbled. And a young man named Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark. And God struck him dead. Killed him right then and there. You can read about that in, in 2 Samuel 6. Seems a little extreme, right? Like, does God have a temper? Um, what's going on here? But that's not it. Remember, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? The, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not just commandments. They're not just a law. They're a representation of God's perfection right? They are the character of God put into law form. And it's a law that none of us has lived up to. So God is loving and kind, but the ark and the Ten Commandments inside remind us he's also holy. Think of holiness like complete, perfect light. Light with, with an infinite intensity, 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And, and, and as sinners, as law breakers, we are darkness. What happens when darkness comes into contact with light? 
right? Not good for the darkness. Light by its very nature has zero tolerance for darkness. It expels darkness. Same is true with God's goodness. He is goodness of of full 100% completeness, complete intensity of goodness. And we're not. We're sinful. We're corrupt. He is the perfect law and we are lawbreakers. The prophet Isaiah, when he was brought into the presence of the Lord, described it this way. Isaiah 6. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him there stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And they called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was sure he was going to die. This is the end for me. This is it. I'm lost. I'm undone. I'm about to be consumed because I who am sinful have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Darkness has come into the presence of light. It's over for me. As Hebrews says, we we ought to approach God with reverence and awe. Hebrews 12, 29 For our God is a consuming fire. It's terrifying. So many people take God so casually today. We kind of just put God on the back burner. We let God tag along. We pat him on the head every now and then. Throw him a bone. We imagine he he doesn't really mind our little shortcomings, we'll call them. Sin is such an ugly word. Um, No, we're just not perfect. God will be happy as long as I try my best, right? God's like my mommy who always loves me. It would be enough for God, wouldn't it, if if my good deeds just kind of outweighed my bad, 51% or maybe 60%. And really, even if it didn't, God would overlook that. Isn't he a nice God? We, We have all but lost the fear of the Lord. That's not the God of the Bible. If you don't have a certain amount of fear of God, then then you don't know him. Then then whatever it is that you call God, if he doesn't in some way kind of terrify you, then, then that's just a God of your own imagination. It's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a mighty God, a holy God. A God who shakes the mountain and his voice rings out like thunder with lightning and fire. A God who, in his goodness, will leave no sin, no evil, unpunished. That's bad news for us, right? Hebrews 10, 30 to 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The presence of the Lord is a dreadful thing. Yavin couldn't have escaped that as he heard those words. The Lord is coming here to dwell among us. 
I don't know if I like that idea. His presence is so desirable, but it is also so dreadful. Do you fear the Lord? Do you understand him rightly? Or are you, are you too cavalier with God? Do you respect him? Revere him as you should. Uzzah, whom the Lord put to death for touching the ark, his sin was not small and inconsequential. It wasn't just that he reached out and touched the ark, but he lacked the fear of the Lord. He lacked the understanding of the holiness of God, and so he arrogantly and foolishly presumed that it would be okay for him to reach out and touch the ark. He assumed that it was better for the ark to come in contact with sinful humanity than the dirt under his feet, and he was wrong. He took God lightly. He assumed that his sin in the face of God was a small thing. That he was close to God. That we were, we're near the same level. And the Lord put him to death. So we have this conundrum wrapped up in the imagery of the ark. The beauty of the Lord and the fear of the Lord. Side by side. It's what our hearts long for. He is the, the peace and joy and hope and, and everything that we desire, but he is also a consuming fire that we cannot approach. He is untouchable for sinners like us. I spoke earlier of that storyline of the Bible, that one uniting story. This is the crux of it. If you're mapping out the narrative arc of Scripture, this is the climax. This is the problem that has to be solved. If the presence of the Lord is what we need, if it is our hope and our joy and we cannot approach it, His holy presence is certain destruction for sinners, what do we do? And the Ark of the Covenant answers, it's done. It's already done. There's nothing you can do to be safe in His presence, but He has done something. The presence of the Lord is desirable. The presence of the Lord is dreadful. And thirdly, the presence of the Lord is done, as in God has solved the problem. The answer is wrapped up in understanding the lid that goes on top of this ark. It's also called the mercy seat. Um, look with me at um, chapter 25, verses uh, 17 through 22. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them. On the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the, cherub, the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings Above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall they face, so the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And then flip over 
chapter 37, verse 6. We see Bezalel's faithful obedience. 37, 6. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half was its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. And he made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. And of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another, toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. So same, same language, um, detail for detail, he, he obeyed. The lid for this box was made of pure gold. The dimensions match the lid of, or match the size of the box. Um, and on top of it, there are two cherubim. Uh, the im in Hebrew is like, their, like our S. So cherubim is two cherubs. Um, but that word cherub, uh, you know, somehow we hear that and we think, you know, Cupid at, at Valentine's Day with his little bow and arrow and, the, and a diaper, not accurate. Um, no, the, the cherubs are impressive, mighty creatures. Um, it's a little hard in the, the passages that speak about them to decipher what's, what's symbolic and metaphorical and what's literal. Uh, as, as you go through uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah that we read a moment ago, um, but they were mighty creatures who dwelt in the presence of God, terrifying creatures. Uh, Ezekiel describes as a, a mixture of man, eagle, lion, and ox. Um, they have wings and arms, the ones in Isaiah have six wings. They possibly have multiple faces. Um, these are just blow-your-mind, crazy, cool creatures. Um, I don't know what Bezalel put on top of the ark. I assume that God directed him as he did that. Um, but a cherub, it was. And the Lord said between these two creatures, his presence would dwell. And as Yavin is listening to the instructions of the ark, wondering about the presence of the Lord, fearful of, of what would happen. Uh, this, this God that he had seen in fire and smoke, whose thundering voice had shook the ground under his feet, wondering about the holiness of God represented in the ark, recognizing his own sinfulness. His heart would have leapt with hope as he saw verse 17, as he heard that read out for the first time. Now, the, the phrase mercy seat there. Now, you shall build a mercy seat. The, the translation is tricky. Um, it's kaporet is the Hebrew word. Um, literally, it just means cover. And so there are people who say mercy seat is way too much. That's not written there. All that's written is cover. And actually, in your ESV, uh, if you're reading it, um, you'll see a footnote, uh, a little number one. And it takes you down, and it just says cover. Um, it did mean cover, and yet that word was so rich with meaning beyond that. Um, originally, it seems the word meant to, to smear with pitch, in the same way that Noah covered uh, the ark. Pitch is this heavy, thick tar. But over time, the word developed as it was used, as words do. Uh, and it's the same word that shows up in Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the day of covering. And so... 
this is so much more than a lid. This is a covering, not just for a box, but for sin. Look at verse 21 in, in chapter 25. And you shall put the mercy seat, the covering on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony, the, the commandments. Verse 22, there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from above the covering. God is saying something here. I understand your sin problem. I understand that because of your sin, you cannot approach me without being consumed. So I will cover your sin. I will cover over the Ten Commandments that condemn you. I will make atonement for you. See, every other religion in the world is about what you must do to approach God. And you'll hear this conversation as if God is at the top of the mountain and there are many different ways that we can climb up to God. Islam says you need to live according to these five pillars. Hinduism says, no, no, you, you need to, to take either the path of works or of knowledge or devotion and then you'll reach enlightenment, oneness with God. Buddhism says enlightenment will come through the, the four noble truths and living according to the, the eightfold path. Try that. Uh, even Judaism, as it has been uh, corrupted and left this teaching, talks about the, the Ten Commandments and the 613 commands that you have to obey and then you'll find favor with God. But here in the instructions of the mercy seat, God is saying, no. No, you won't come up to me. That's the problem that you have. You cannot approach me. You can't, you can't close that gap. I have done it. I will accomplish the way into my presence. I will make the covering for your sin. And God was very specific. Put the testimony, the, the Ten Commandments, the symbol of my perfection and your sin the law that condemns you into the ark and put the cover over top and I will dwell there above the covering. So that when the Lord looked down from his holy presence, from his throne, he would not see the Ten Commandments that condemned them. He would see the mercy seat, the atonement cover. And as the tabernacle was put into operation, on the Day of Atonement, once a year, Yom Kippur, the sacrifice would be offered, an animal killed because sin demands death. And so the symbolism was there's a death in your place and the blood of that animal was sprinkled on top of the mercy seat. That blood was, was not works. It was not earning favor with God. It was an act of faith. He was saying, God, we believe that you will cover sin. We're trusting in your covering. Every other religion and every instinct of our heart is, God, what do I have to do to please you? What do I have to do to try to attain favor with God? And God says, no, stop it. That's part of the problem, that you think you can approach me, that you think you're close to me. I have to do it, and I have done it. What a relief. What hope Yavin would have felt as he heard these words, make a covering. Maybe also some 
confusion, though. Because the atonement cover and the sacrifice of animals didn't actually deal with sin. It was rather a promise that God would deal with sin. That there would be an answer to this problem. The mercy seat is what we call a type. Uh, A type is some true historical person or object that God has ordained to point forward to something greater. Our friend Yavin could only look with awe and wonder and speculation at what we now know in full, that the, the mercy seat is a type of Christ. It's pointing forward to Jesus. He is our mercy seat. He is our atonement. He is the covering for sin that God has provided so that we can come into his presence. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus was the sacrifice. He was the atonement. He was it. It's Jesus who stands in between the holiness of God and the law that condemns us. And he covers our sin. God's presence is desirable. That's the greatest understatement ever made. He is joy and life and light. He is hope and peace and rest. But his presence is also dreadful. We have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Nothing has changed there. We are sinful. We don't live according to God's perfection. And we're right in ourselves to stand in terror, in fear of the holiness of God. We ought to tremble before him. If you or I were to stand before him uncovered, uh, we would be consumed. We would be devoured by his holiness And the day of judgment is coming. A day that the Bible describes as a day of wrath and fury and fire against every person who's rebellious against God. But God has made a way. Jesus came as our atonement cover. With Jesus, we can stand in the presence of the holy God. Not not by anything that we have done, but by trusting in what he has done. Romans 3 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith, by trusting in him. Think of it this way. I was watching a a video on space a while back. If you were to step out into space, you decided somehow you got your way up into the International Space Station or maybe you got onto one of Elon Musk's new uh, transports and heading for Mars. And you decided, you know, I'm just going to step outside for a breath of fresh air. Um, that was a bad idea. Um, do you know what happened as you stepped out into space? Um, your, your back half, the, the half facing away from the sun, would immediately hit minus 250 degrees like a piece of dry ice just being pressed up against you, it would, would freeze rock hard almost immediately. And your front half, with the full force of the sun and not the protection of our atmosphere, would hit about plus 250 degrees, and your skin would burn and your blood would begin to boil. 
At the same time, because of the vacuum of space, all the air would be sucked out of your lungs and all of the, the gases and, and oxygen in your blood and your muscles and tissues would begin to come to gas again and expand within you and bubble out. It would be a gruesome, horrible, painful way to die. And yet, over 200 people have walked out into space and survived. How do they do it? How can they stand in the in space and live, they have a spacesuit. They have this highly technical, carefully designed, well-insulated, pressurized suit, perfectly constructed to diffuse all the dangers of space, but you have to put it on. God's wrath is infinitely more terrifying than the sun or the cold or the vacuum of space, but Jesus is that perfect covering. Designed by God himself, his perfect plan to shield us from his wrath so that we can dwell in his presence. But, but you have to put it on. You have to trust him. You put him on by, by repentance and faith. Repentance is just turning away from sin. I'm not, I'm not going that way anymore. I'm not walking in rebellion against God anymore. And faith is trusting in him. I'm looking to him. God has made a way into his wonderful presence, and it's Jesus. He is our perfect covering. And, and maybe you need to think about that as a first-time thing. I, I need to put my faith in him. I need to trust him. But maybe that's something past tense for you. I would encourage you not to think of it as a singular past tense moment. Are you continuing to walk in that? It's not good enough to say, I put a spacesuit on once. I think I'll go out again. No, you need to live in the spacesuit. You need to live in Jesus. Are you continuing day after day in ongoing repentance and, and faith, trusting in the Savior? Do you live in awe and wonder this amazing miracle that, that God has made a way for us to, to be welcomed into his presence? Does that reality of that cover bear fruit in your life? Or are you still walking around carrying the weight of sin and shame and guilt for sin that, that, that Christ has covered? That should be done with? That's why Jesus left us the practice of communion. I'll invite the worship team to join me and we'll turn our attention there. Just like Israel was to gather every year for the Day of Atonement and they would offer a sacrifice Again, they would kill another bull and they would take the blood into the tabernacle and sprinkle it onto the mercy seat. They were being reminded year after year of their sinfulness and God's promise to cover that sin. In the same way, we, we gather regularly for communion, reminding ourselves we don't deserve the presence of God. We can't stand in his holiness, but he has made a way. The fulfillment of this promise of the, the mercy seat and the day of atonement, that Jesus Christ is our true and better mercy seat, who perfectly, completely covers sin for all those who will trust in him. What a great hope we have. What an amazing God we have. So we're going to sing together as the elements are handed out. You'll find two cups, the bread underneath and the juice on top. 
Um, this is for believers. This is for those who have said, no, I am trusting in Christ. He is my hope and my faith and my rock. So I encourage you, let's stand together and worship and celebrate the greatness of what our God has done. Uh, and then I'll come back and we'll partake together.